Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. We return to part two of an in-depth discussion of the U.S.-China trade war with Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister of Australia. The conversation picks up with the thought that the Chinese government is working hard to determine the actual position of the U.S. government. The host, Dick Drobnik, starts off with a description of a dinner with a delegation from CAS, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. The Chinese Academy of Social Sciences sent a delegation to the United States, and they stopped in Los Angeles, and the head of the delegation was the chairman of CAS. And he's a former party secretary of Hunan. And he had, we, we had a dinner, we had a forum discussion at the Chinese Consul General's residence. And there were 18 Americans on one side of the table from various universities and think tanks, and 18 Chinese on the other side of the table. Mm-hmm. Most of the Chinese had PhDs in uh, engineering and economics and from American universities and maybe an Australian university or two. And there were another 18 people behind them that were really taking notes. (laughs) And it was all about what is going on in Washington? What does Washington think of China? What does American business think about China? Hmm. So they're very systematically gathering information, as you know they do, and they will bring that back. And and this delegation stopped in Chicago and New York and I think D.C. also. Yeah, we've had Chinese delegations here at the Asia Society Policy Institute here in New York as well. Um, CAS has been, uh, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, been rolling around the place. Uh, we had a delegation involving uh, three former vice ministers of the central government um, who also went on to visit Washington. I think they had two missions. Uh, the principal mission was to try and reach an agreed analytical consensus as to what the hell is actually happening here. And the second one... And, and what is likely to happen... And where it goes going forward, to. yeah. And the second one uh, is to send out uh, a meta-message that uh, there are still lines of communication open with Beijing, even though a number of them are shut down. And I worry about the fact that the military lines of communication are beginning to shut down somewhat as well. But to go back to our central point, uh, what will China's response be and how will that affect, let's say, American business or international businesses dealing with China? Uh, the Chinese methodology is when there is a deep <coughs> strategic shift in their external circumstances, uh, whether it's in the global economy, like the financial crisis 10 years ago, uh, this major shift in U.S. Uh, perceptions of the China challenge uh, through to climate uh, and uh, sustainable, sustainable development. Uh, they throw all their resources at getting the analysis right. And then there is an internal process which then takes place as they sift through the analysis. Then they agree objectively uh, using remarkable methodologies what they think the empirical truth is. Though they'll use this term, uh, which is scientific reality, uh, uh, or the scientific uh, truth. Uh, Kevin, I forgot to mention at the beginning of our interview that you are a student of China and you are fluent in Chinese, and so thank you for bringing these phrases up. No, it's okay. That's that's just uh, 
stuff that I do and uh, did before I slid down the food chain of life into national politics. So, and I once had a serious job uh, as a sinologist. But they then bring this process of analysis to a conclusion. Now, one of the things I like to find out is when is that going to happen? And I suspect they will think that the realities uh, begin to become clearer here. After the election. Certainly after the midterms, and certainly, I think, once we're into the new year. And they will see whether the Trump post the midterms is interested in a trade and economic deal or not, or whether it's acceptable to the Chinese. Uh, that'll be, I think, their, their last uh, attempt to see if uh, that is salvageable from the current um, embers of the relationship. Uh, and then my instincts tell me that by the time you start to reach uh, the processes of p internal party deliberation through what's called the, um, the plenums of the party centre, which are usually in March uh, of each year, I'd expect that by about March next year you'll start to see the consensus lines emerge. And then there'll be little doubt from all of us as to what it actually means in return. And it will not be a, a, a shift in Chinese policy based on the, the musings of President Xi. Well, Xi Jinping has a decisive influence on these things, but their system ultimately is still anchored in some fundamental research as to what the other reality is. Uh, China has learnt over a century of experience to throw its best analytical resources as how its external environment is changing. And they've said and they've learnt from their peril when they fail to do that. The invasion of Japan uh, in uh, the 1930s, the invasions by the British uh, during the two opium wars, etc. Um, so, so Xi Jinping, I believe, will be decisive on the question of what China should now do, but that'll be deeply influenced by what the, let's call it the aggregate analytical resources of the party will conclude is the reality uh, that they're now dealing with. And you see, they've observed many chops and changes in US uh, policy and strategy over the last 40 years as well. Remember, we thought it was the end of the world in US-China relations after the Tiananmen uh, massacre of uh, 1989. Then we had um, uh, the uh, spy plane uh, incident uh, early in the Bush administration in 2001. Uh, in between that we had um, the uh, Taiwan Straits crisis uh, under the Clinton administration. So the Chinese have seen these things come and go and therefore they will still ask this question, is this current change durable? Or is this a part of American political ephemera? But as I personally think it's durable, but that's a different matter. As an economist, what we know is that the administration has brought new uncertainty into international trade and international investment decisions. And so now if I'm a CEO and I'm thinking about where should we continue to produce, I'm, I'm producing for the Chinese market, inside of uh, Shanghai or Hangzhou or Nanjing, but I'm also producing for export. And if the risk of my exports are going to be hit with tariffs, I'm going to start thinking, I better move some production out of China. Not back to the United States, but perhaps to the Philippines, perhaps to Taiwan, perhaps to Korea, depending on the, the complexity of the thing I'm producing. 
So my, my guess is, and it's not just true for American companies, it's got to be true for German companies, it's got to be true for Japanese companies, to move some of your stuff out of China to somewhere else. Certainly if you think it's durable. If you don't think it's durable or you're not sure, well then just wait a while and, and pay the tariffs. That's true. Um, I think uh, what you'll see large firms doing over time uh, is trying to bring down risk factors for themselves uh, by seeking to third country as much of what they do as possible. Given these two elephants in the front living room uh, are throwing crockery around in a big way at the moment. And so therefore it might be better in the judgment of firms uh, to look at third country options in terms of where you do stuff, leaving aside where you then sell stuff. Um, now of course if you're selling stuff uh, you've got two things in mind, the Chinese market directly uh, or of course uh, through the global supply chain to um, other third country markets. So if you're sitting around a corporate, uh, a corporate um, boardroom there'll be some temptation to uh, de-risk or reduce risk uh, by seeking to do frankly what you've just suggested and I can understand why firms would reach that uh, conclusion all other factors being equal let me just look at one scenario the United States at present is focused on what it can do to China the United States is not yet fully focused on what China can do to the United States one of the things which kicks around China a lot um, is something I've mentioned several times in the public debate so far, which is this. Uh, China at present uh, only imports about $140 billion a year worth of uh, goods and services from um, the United States. Um, but in terms of uh, the total Chinese imports, which involve an element of American componentry in a global supply chain, uh, from a final product which may come from Britain, Germany, wherever else, or Japan. Uh, that is con a considerably larger number, in fact goes to the essence of global trade as we know it today. So the Chinese, if they were seeking to be um, problematic, uh, would say to the world, uh, as of X date, say 12 months time, of course we're going to have a 25% tariff regime on anything which comes from the United States into this country. But we'll also have a 25% tax on any element of U.S. Any componentry. Any components. And therefore we're saying to all of our European suppliers, <coughs> all of our Asian suppliers, and all of our Japanese suppliers, uh, and Australian suppliers, you've got 12 months to change your componentry. So we're not going to screw your businesses now, but we're putting you on notice. Putting you on notice, change your supplier of component X. Yeah. And as you know, that starts to take what is currently a bilateral trade dispute, conflict and war into a global uh, dispute, conflict and war. Which brings me to my second level of risk beyond individual firms. Is the capacity of this uh, trade war, if it escalates beyond December, and I do think December is our next best and maybe last opportunity to land this thing uh, with a deal. Uh, is the impact it will in turn have on business confidence in the United States, further impact on business confidence in China and globally. 
And then you begin to have the material effect of uh, investment decisions being postponed, real levels of economic activity declining and inducing uh, recession in a number of countries. And given that we are late in the current business cycle here in the United States, in a boom um, and a bull market which has gone on and gone on and gone on, so is, uh, is when does the economic equivalent of a Sarajevo event have its effect, which is to bring about a deep correction, a yeah. deep and profound correction uh, in, uh, in market sentiment. That's something also which policymakers in Washington, and I'm sure Mnuchin, Secretary Mnuchin, is acutely conscious of this, perhaps the president less so, that this booming, roaring, raging American economy at present, which has been performing so well, including uh, through um, uh, the latter years the Obama administration, having um, brought America out of the wreckage of the global financial crisis, is when does all this come to a shuddering halt and does the triggering event become the objective one of slowing growth as a consequence of a of a escalating trade war uh, involving US China plus and when whether that becomes in addition to it a psychological factor causing people to postpone business decisions in the future well let's go to December or January I can imagine a solution to the problem. And the solution is that Trump says, President Trump says his negotiators have met with the Chinese again, and we got a great victory. We've got a tremendous victory, the best deal in the world. An like awesome, like an his awesome guy, deal. An awesome deal, like his guys did with NAFTA. You know, NAFTA was the worst thing in the world. And his people have now made it the best thing in the world. But like now, North Korea. Or, you mean there are still nuclear weapons there, but... Like North Korea. We've solved the problem. Or like with <laughs> the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement. Hmm. Tear it up. Your colleague, Wendy Cutler, hmm. the chief negotiator for it, they hmm. tore it up because it's the worst deal in the world and put together a new one that doesn't have a 1% difference in it. Hmm. So could the Chinese and the American negotiators come to an agreement that has relatively small difference, some, some gains for the Americans, but nothing terribly detrimental for the Chinese. So the Chinese are willing to sign this, and, and our uh, president, the administration, can claim a great victory. On the balance of probabilities, um, I would make a judgment that it would be in the uh, perceived self-interest of each side to do that. Mm. Uh, Xi Jinping, who is mightily angered by what has transpired in 2018 for a whole range of reasons, is nonetheless steeped in Chinese statecraft and he knows that the interests of his state uh, are basically defined. He's a $12 trillion economy with half a trillion dollars worth of exports to this country. Therefore, the impact of a shuddering halt to the US-China trade is profound in terms of growth or what's left of growth in the Chinese economy. And where that reverberates to in terms of his domestic political project and his foreign and security policy project as well. President Xi would like a deal. 
President Trump, uh, who as we know is not a graduate of the Georgetown School of Diplomacy, um, and President Trump is President Trump. He has his own... Nor the Tsinghua School of Management. <laughs> nor the Tsinghua School of Management, but uh, he's the president and he won the election. And so if we look um, at, let's call it Art of the Deal Plus, his ability as uh, the, uh, again, the writer of the New Testament would say to uh, turn a silk purse uh, out of a sow's ear, uh, is quite remarkable, and to proclaim defeat as victory, uh, black as white, uh, and uh, ugliness rapidly become beauty. Uh, Kim uh, Jong-un, my new best buddy with whom I fell in love, who was uh, nine months ago little rocket man on his way to hell, uh, the President of the United States has a remarkable capacity to, shall I say, I won't say reinvent reality, but to redescribe reality. Mm. So there's that skill, political skill, plus what you've just described, which is, and we've just discussed, which is the underlying view uh, deep in the bowels of the economic administration here in the United States that we can't play with this thing for too much longer before it gets really out of control purely in terms of the economics of it. And so therefore, I suspect that you're going to have a US administration that'll want to, well part of it, will want to talk Turkey uh, sometime in the period after the midterms and uh, before we get to the end of the year. But there's one caveat. Politics is a funny old thing. Uh, so is nationalism. Neither of those things readily fit into an economic model uh, in my long experience of what uh, the London School of Economics teaches magically since the uh, early 20th century is political economy. How do you model politics? How do you model uh, the impact of, uh, of nationalism, for example, as a political sentiment? If President Trump ends up in massive political trouble post the midterms and post uh, a Mueller investigation, does politics then reach over the top of this and cause him to double down on the China relationship mm. in order to deal with the realities of his political base and his own political survival? The flip side of that is, how does politics treat Xi Jinping within his own system? Uh, there's often an assumption in the United States that the Chinese don't have politics because it's a one-party state. God, this is not true. And that's just demonstrably not true. If any of us have dealt with China over the years, no. Uh, and there ain't any votes in the Politburo these days for being soft on America. Um, so therefore, where does politics go for Xi Jinping? That's a more opaque question than the one we face here in the United States. So the one caveat to my answer to your question before about can this thing be landed by the end of the year? Yeah. Self-interest, rational self-interest theory would tell us both for the Chinese and the Americans, uh, land a deal, uh, put lipstick on it, uh, wrap it up in the best uh, wrapping paper you can find, and proclaim peace in our time. And the best deal for America that we've ever had. We've, we've ever had since the last best ever deal we had for America. Uh, and uh, But the caveat is politics, and a particularly ugly form of politics, which is nationalism out of control. Well, on that positive note, Mr. Prime Minister, Mr. President of the Asia Society Policy Institute, I want to thank you very much for a very engaging interview. Good to talk to you, and I wish you uh, well uh, over there uh, on the West Coast and the work that you're doing uh, at the university. 
and we look forward to you visiting Los Angeles in my role as chair of the Asia Society Southern California and in my role as a business school uh, person visit the campus and give a talk to our students look forward too. to it we've always looked on LA as just uh, eastern Sydney so that's fine <laughs> thank you Kevin <laughs> <laughs> just eastern Sydney business class expert insight into the world of business the host is Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite.